0: Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zenidu, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode...
1: I saw a lot of hard work And a lot of challenges that if I pursued a different way forward through my degree in my career, I would not have to experience myself. And I saw that early on. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. In this episode, we decided to flip the script. After I had Sonia Tivari on the podcast a few weeks ago, she offered to interview me and unpack my learning journey, starting with my childhood in Greece. If you would like to learn more about Sonia, her story, and how she brings creative design into early childhood education, you can listen to episode 82. In today's conversation. Sonia is the host of Impact Learning and she asks great questions and provides wonderful guidance and insights. Thank you, Sonia. That was fun. I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell personal stories that I have not shared before and shine the light on my informal learning experiences that have guided my education and career choices. We hope that you all enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Let's dive right in. You look like a professional podcaster. (laughs) Thank you. How are you today, Sonia? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. What would you like to know?
0: I was just curious with your diverse background from theory to practice to research, and I'm curious how it all started. So maybe your early childhood experiences with learning or any other memorable childhood learning experiences?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about that because my learning journey, as I see it, went through, I guess, two parallel ways. The formal one that many people know through my career and the choices and the education, but there are also a lot of experiences uh, that fit within the informal experiences. And uh, this is something that I have not uh, shared a lot. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to to share with you.
0: So I heard on one of your earlier podcasts and your trailers, many times you've mentioned snippets of your childhood. And one of them was about your preschool, that you didn't get accepted and you had homeschooling at that time. So tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. So my twin sister and I were not accepted. I think it was over capacity and they did not have enough, so they couldn't accommodate us. But uh, my mom uh, taught us uh, uh, the alphabet and the numbers. And uh, I remember that she went to the library and she brought us books. Again, I don't remember the specifics. Maybe they were books for first grade. I do not remember what they were. But I remember that I was very happy that I had books Because that was another thing, you know, that we would get from school. And uh, my sister and I always had a lot of curiosity, like to learn things. So I don't think my mom needed to do a lot. We just started reading different things and learning different things. I know we also like to write things down, you know, whether it was the alphabet or numbers, very basic things at this point. And uh, we learned all this and then we, we got into the habit of going to the library. And I think back then, again, maybe they were, we were allowed to get one or two books a week. I remember there was there was a limit. So we would, every maybe three days, we would return the book and get something else. But also we could choose uh, different things to learn. I remember that we spent quite a bit of time, you know, writing, learning together with my twin sister, but also probably consumed much more content and learned more things that we would learn if, if we had gone to preschool. So when we arrived in the first grade, we knew more than anybody else. And, uh, you know, I followed the teacher and whatever they were teaching us and they were asking us to do for our homework. But I had become aware of, uh, of the library and additional resources that I could, uh, learn from. Again, I don't remember back then if I continued every week to go and get books. I, I, I don't have this memory now, but I, I remember that it, it stayed with me that I could, you know, learn different things. I did not have to wait for someone to tell me what to read. I could go and find things. I think to me, that was the big learning. And uh it took me a year until I went to the first grade that I felt comfortable that, like, I had not missed something. because, You know, because mm-hmm. I, was, I was, I did not know what was school like. But when I arrived and the teachers were asking questions or they were teaching us things that I had already learned, I really felt like, okay, whatever we did last year, it worked. So I will keep doing that. Did you
0: also learn in multiple languages at that time?
1: Back then, it was uh, mandatory in uh, middle school or high school. I think it was middle school. Somehow, my mom wanted us to learn to speak English. And we started, I think, when uh, I was eight. But it was a private one. And uh, we had to figure out how to pay for that. All of us, because I have two sisters, one identical twin and my older sister, we all studied English and uh, the teachers had suggested that we could start learning more languages. Again, this was not very common back then. We're talking now 40 years ago, but unfortunately we did not have the funds. We could not afford more. So we did not learn uh, more languages until later in life.
0: I've read so many fascinating studies on how children who grow up with multiple languages have better brain development maybe like one of your future guests could be someone from linguistics and you know discuss more of that it's it's fascinating because we try to translate back and forth and we kind of have to switch our brain to a different mode when reading or learning in a different language and like the saying that this is all Greek to me, that always gave me the impression that Greek might be a challenging language to master. It, d- did you feel that way? Like, did you find other languages that
1: you learned eventually easier? Yes, Greek language to start with is quite complex. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, I think if you know Greek, uh, it's probably easier to learn other languages. Actually, my, my dad... And his family, they came to Greece as refugees in 1922 from the northern part of Greece that's next to Turkey. And, um, they had their own dialect. For example, my grandma would speak only in, in that uh, dialect and I could not really understand. So I had to ask other people to translate and then learn from them. Because again, back then there was no other way. Someone had to tell you what she's talking about and then start learning languages. My mom also had learned. At least she was able to understand. And she could say basic things, but she was able to understand the conversations and everything. And we also learned together with that. I think that happened, well, as soon as I started understanding languages and speaking. But I was uh, trying to learn as much as I could from that. I don't remember much now because I don't practice it. <laughs> right. It's still, I, I think it's, it's good that
0: since Greek is the origin or like the basis for several other languages, then it
1: definitely helped you. Yeah. Very one thing. I think we spent our summers in the countryside that my mom grew up. My dad and my mom, they were uh, they were born and raised in villages in the countryside. They were close to each other, but quite different, actually, in terms of culture, language and all that. In the village that my mom was born and raised, we spent... Uh, Almost three months every summer between the age of uh, six and 16. They speak Greek, but every place has a little bit of, uh, it's not a dialect. It's more of a local word that they use and quite a bit of an accent. Now, this is different now between myself and my two sisters. I learned all the local idioms and everything they were using, and I was using them. And I had adapted the accent. My two sisters did not do that. So this is where you start seeing also some preferences. In my case, it was so intense that when uh, I was going back to school, you know, in September, teachers would ask my mom, where did you send Maria? I was the only one who was speaking with an accent, who was using different words. I was trying to connect, to be closer to them because I was doing other things as well that they were doing. For me, like how we sound, how we speak, the words we use, somehow it it made me feel like closer to them. And also they felt closer to me. Now, I'm reflecting on that now when I was six and eight years old, I was not thinking of that. But I was, you wouldn't know if if you met me, you know, playing with other kids, you wouldn't know that I I live in the city. You would think that I am born and raised in the same place that all the other kids were.
0: Right. I think like uh, children until the age of eight, they have like this high neuroplasticity and are able to absorb and learn and blend in, adapt more quickly than anyone else. But I I know you also had a twin about the same age. So I guess it also has to do with the personality and who is actively trying to fit in uh, versus just, you know, adapt. It's kind of like here, like we came to the U.S. as immigrants and that was another opportunity for us to, you know, decide how much of our original accent or culture are we willing to sort of fade away in, in order to try to blend in. But as adults, maybe we are more set in our base, so it's harder to adapt
1: to that level. Yeah. But there were other things as well. So it was language is one, but the other things like so they would uh, have lunch. And they would, not all the people would use a fork. Right. Most of that was out of necessity. But when I would see an adult not using fork, you know, I would also say, oh, I don't want to, I don't need a fork. So there were other things that I was trying to mimic them, to learn from them, to do like them. And again, my two sisters, none of that. Right. Also, I was... uh, that was a problematic thing, I was told later. <laughs> I saw the other kids walking barefoot. I wanted to walk barefoot. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of little things like that. For me, it was, well, if they do that, let me do it to see what it is. Let me talk like that so to see how it sounds. Let me eat like that. So it's, it was more about, I think, but maybe a little bit extreme curiosity. Extreme Because again, my my two sisters, none of that. My mom would always say, you can go there, wear your shoes. <laughs> right. But think about now, again, now it's easier to see. Think about, I've, I've been in different places. Again, I, I don't want to compare one with the other. My sisters haven't, like they haven't had the interest I had. I don't know if it was developed or it was created or, but it was, it was a different environment in the countryside, seeing, experiencing other things that I was interested in learning or adapting to. But I think the opportunity to be in a very different environment, to me, that was interesting. At the, t- at the time, it was a lot of fun. I always found my summers more fun than my, my winters. <laughs> right,
0: And up until elementary school, I'm guessing, or you continued going until
1: middle school, right? Yes, until actually, until we started, um, I think, two years before uh, basically the national exam. So we're in high school. So the first year in high school, like I think I was 15, 15 or 16. That was the last summer because the other two summers we were preparing for the national exams and we had a lot of uh, things to do, like a lot of things to study at home. So we did not go there at all. And I missed it very much. So in high school, was it
0: typical for most students to take summers off and just focus on studying and
1: preparing yeah. for this exam? Yeah. Well, most of them, yes. Yes, because it was, we, you know, we needed to do quite a bit of preparation, very intense. Uh, I mean, I, I don't remember how many hours I was able to sleep every night, but it was very intense, like 15 months preparing, you know, up to the, because the exams happen the summer after we graduate. And basically, yes, starting the pre- previous summer, it was quite uh, quite intense. Not every student did that. I think maybe some students went on summer vacation. But for us, we decided that we needed that time to stay at home and study. I did not mind that at all because I wanted to study well and uh, get into the university, get into the chemistry department. Oh, wow.
0: So, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what my question was. That were you able to pick your major and find some sort of direction on what you wanted to study for undergraduate degree during that
1: time in high school? So I think it was earlier. Mm-hmm. I liked studying everything. So I had an inclination for STEM, math, science, chemistry, biology, physics. But I also like history. I like uh, mythology. I like um, Philosophy, geography. I enjoyed learning different subjects and different topics and I was able to learn quite fast. So I still, you know, I was learning different subjects and I was doing my homework and I still had enough time to play and do other things. But my, I think it was middle school that I I was very clear that I would uh, follow the STEM path. Back then I, I knew it would be either physics or chemistry. And this is where the teachers, teachers we have play a role. I liked chemistry a lot. I also liked physics. It's not a surprise that my PhD is material science because it brings both things together. But for my undergrad, I wanted to study chemistry. But I had a very, very good uh, teacher, a physics teacher, who provided me with quite a bit of guidance. What he saw I would be doing, I thought at the time I would be a teacher. Later on, maybe a professor, you know, through grad school and everything. But he was the one, I was 17, and he said to me, you will be a chemist and you will work for a company. Now, how did he see that? (laughs) I wanted to study chemistry and I wanted to understand, you know, how things are and how things work.
0: Outside of the encouragement from the teacher and your own interests,
1: were there other things that you think encouraged you to pursue this path? So for me, science is understanding the environment around us. Materials, you know, materials is more about the chemistry and then how they work is the physics part. And that they come together as material science, but it's basically chemical reactions and then physical forces and uh, reactions. That's how I see the world. So I wanted, I think I always wanted to understand how things or materials behave and then why. And between these two, again, chemistry and physics, it was very clear to me, this is what I would do. The fact that there was like so hands-on experience, I think that's, that's what attracted me so much in chemistry and physics. I'm curious, like,
0: even when you know broadly that, oh, I'm interested in STEM and then, you know, a little bit narrower that I like physics and chemistry more than other subjects and then even more narrower that uh, material sciences. So. How did that narrowing down occur for you? Like in high school, by the end of it, you knew that, oh, I'm interested in chemistry. Then was it during your undergraduate degree that you found that specialization So or you always knew that, oh, this is the one thing where both physics and chemistry are interacting together in a very exciting way. And this is it, like were you focused from the beginning or it evolved
1: over time? When I made my final decision, because I was debating between chemistry and physics, mm-hmm. and you have to put it like in, um, when, when you apply for, you know, when you are part of the national exams, you have to actually prioritize. So I put first chemistry department at the University of Athens. Then I put physics at the University of Athens. Then I put chemistry in, in other universities outside of Athens. And basically, based on the grades and the tests, you, you can you know get accepted in any of these based on your priority. When I started studying chemistry, that was it. I loved it. But there was physical chemistry. There was quantum chemistry. You know, so there is a lot of different aspects. So it's not like a 100% chemistry. Probably 80% was chemistry. But it was very clear to me that's what I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And then when I was uh, considering uh, doing a PhD, I was debating between biology because biology also was of interest to me. And uh, polymer chemistry, polymer science, and I decided to go with the second one because it had much more applications. Like I could see, there were connections that I would I would be able to solve more problems. Again, problems as I saw them in the world. Try to explain how things work. Probably outside of the body, because <laughs> uh, if I was interested in the body, I would have studied biology or more interested. I think I was lucky lucky like that I found my place it was very clear to me I was very interested in chemistry and physics and like the material science piece came in my grad work very very clear in that but I did continue to study history for example I'm very much interested in history and literature and music and being in the Greek culture you know, going to the theater and, uh, you know, watching different performances and uh, reading um, philosophy or poetry. Not uh, a lot, but it was part of my, what I call social activities. Right. Like, you know, with our friends, we would go to a coffee shop, but also I had friends that we would go together to watch, uh, you know, performances at the theater. Basically things that they're available in Greece And also quite affordable. I think I was fortunate to be in a culture that being exposed to other things outside of STEM was common and affordable.
0: I also feel like, like many of the people who are like you in my life, who are good at many things or interested in many things, I feel like curiosity is a core skill, like generally people who are good at learning are naturally curious and you can apply your curiosity and let it lead you in so many different ways. Ultimately, I guess at certain point, it just becomes a thing about mileage. The more time you're spending on one thing becomes your career and other things become sort of your hobby or an outlet for that curiosity. So it's nice that you've been able to maintain that balance in the form of culture. India is similar in terms of, you know, like art and color. But for me growing up, I kind of feel like the same environment where art and music and culture has so much respect, that same environment also kind of pushes children to pursue STEM careers because in India, a lot of people grow up with that sense that, oh, you'll be more secure and stable in life and it's more practical to go to a university for STEM. But if you have creative hobbies, you know, just pursue it as a hobby, just that secondary. Did you ever feel like it was something similar for you growing up? The environment
1: or like a silent cultural pressure? Yeah. Again, I was studying chemistry to become a teacher at home and my family and extended family and relatives. Now we were the only three daughters out of the whole extended family that we went to college, I think the extended family saw us quite different and they would express their opinion like, oh, she's really good at this. She should become a lawyer. Right. So a lawyer and a medical doctor. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, if you're so good, you know, with your grades and everything, why don't you become a medical doctor versus you want to become a teacher? different prestige, different, you know, status quo, right? (laughs) Or Mm. a lawyer. (laughs) Again, if you think about now, I'm thinking of, you know, Greece again, uh, three decades ago. But I, I was very clear. I'm not interested. My mom, I think she always wanted probably for us to do, again, the best we could. But I don't remember ever like feeling pressure. Like if people would suggest, again, becoming a medical doctor or a lawyer, I would just say, I'm not interested. I'm going to study chemistry and I will be a teacher. End of story. I was very, very firm. (laughs) So I don't, I don't remember feeling pressure, but also that's a little bit how I am. Like when I know what I want to do, I tend to remove everything else. Like I don't, I guess I never felt the pressure. Maybe there was pressure, but I never felt it. That's great. I also feel
0: like it's, When your immediate family is supportive, they kind of protect you from the overall culture. Like for me too, like there might have been pressure for girls in other parts of my community, but my immediate adults around me, my parents, uncles, and aunts, they were very supportive. So they kind of shielded me from whatever else was going on. So I I think maybe in that sense, we are lucky to have immediate family who has been supportive even if there
1: might be opinions everywhere else. My mom was more, I think, concerned with uh, like becoming independent because when my father died, my mom was 40 years old. She was a stay-at-home mom with three daughters. We were eight and ten. I was eight and my older sister was ten. So she had three daughters and she found herself in a challenging situation trying to figure out what she would do to provide income. And uh, it was a shock. It was a dramatic experience until she was able to find, you know, a, a job in a factory. So it was basic jobs she could do. But it was good because it was in the neighborhood we were living So. It was the best case, I think. She was able to find a job and seven to three, you know, the the standard thing, and then come home and we were back from school. So it was working okay. But I think my mom was uh, more focused on whatever we would do, as long as we would be like independent Mm -hmm. and we would not have to find ourselves because you never know what life um, throws at you, that we would not have to find ourselves in a very challenging situation. And if we had... We would have something to do better than maybe working in a factory. Yeah, I think that was my mom's major concern and focus, more high level. But she wanted us to develop skills and get a degree and be able to have a good job that you can take care of yourself and your family if needed.
0: I actually love that. As a mother, that's my strategy as well. Like, you know, as long as you feel fulfilled, as long as you're able to support yourself and it's not like hurting anyone, it's great. Like no matter what you do. I was listening to this other podcast, The School of Greatness. A few years ago, they had Michael Beckwith as a guest. He's like a spiritual leader. And he was talking about most uh, people, how they find their purpose is through crisis and through insight, you know, some things go wrong, they overcome some challenges that gives people a sense of purpose and then insight based on things you learn, things where your curiosity leads you. So as I'm listening to your story, it kind of feels like you, you found your purpose in a similar way too. You were curious about chemistry, highly interested, and that personal crisis gave you a sense of independence and Learning, not just for the sake of learning, but enjoying it and making it a source of income, a source of independence.
1: So that's great. There was another aspect that I know now. I don't think I was thinking about it when I was younger because everybody around me, again, both families from my mom's and my dad's side, they either were working in the countryside, they were producing tobacco. And I got to work a little bit with that as well and get this experience because my mom and dad were the only two that they had come to live in Athens. And my dad was a taxi driver because of the summer experience, which is not the summer vacation. It was we were living with them and we were actually doing exactly what all the other kids were doing. And my mom was doing the same things that her sisters or sisters-in-law were doing. So we were actually experiencing their life for three months every uh, year for 10 years. Uh, My mom, of course, was born and raised there. So that was her life before she went to Athens. I don't think my interest in education and in learning came from that, but it was very clear what I would be doing if I did not uh, pursue a degree, if I did not go to the university. I think my interest in chemistry and physics and becoming a teacher was the dominant uh, factor, but I was able to see the life of these people I would call it working class. Most of them were born and raised poor. My mom was born and raised poor, but through work, they started owning some of their land and they started producing things. So they, they went from poor to working class. So I saw that. And my mom was also talking about it because my mom is the best storyteller I know. And so we saw that also, if we can uh, study, if we can learn, that was also a way for us Try to build a better life because when you are in a farm, you can see these people working, you know, 12 and 14 hours a day and they cannot control the weather. I saw a lot of hard work and a lot of um, challenges that if I pursued a different way forward through my degree in my career, I would not have to experience myself. And I saw that early on. And my mom also through her stories, I think she was teaching us that we can build something better and there is a way education is and was that way for us to build a better life. Again, it was not the reason I chose to become a chemist because I loved chemistry so I'm glad these two things came together but, but I also saw what life could be like if I had not gone down the education path. <laughs> Were the stories that your mother telling you her own stories or like they were part of the Greek culture? My mom was uh, telling her own stories. Her dad, my grandfather, whom I never met, also died very young. So both my mom and my grandmother, basically, they lived most of their lives as widows. And uh, my mom was telling us the stories of uh, going to school and not having books. Because back then, we're talking about 70 years ago, the books were not free. And my mom tells stories that she she did not have a book. And there were two or three kids, the daughter of the doctor or the son of the mayor, that they could afford buying their books. And my mom would meet her friend in the morning before they went into class, and she would study one page, and then she would learn it very fast. And my mom tells the story to this day, and she's really proud, how despite the fact that she did not have a book, she was able to read faster than any other kid, and when the teacher asked her to repeat the lesson, you know, it was all memorizing, and uh, she was uh, able to say everything, and she did not make any mistake. Oh, wow. And she did not have books. (laughs) So these kind of stories, or how she learned to make dresses, because my mom knew how to make dresses and different things. In addition to, again, all of them were working, men and women were all working in the tobacco field. That was how they were making money. It's all her story and the story of her family and how they were able, again, from poor, because they were working for other people. And people would, uh, in exchange for their labor, they would not pay them money. They would give them goods like cheese and tomatoes and other things because my mom's family could not produce anything because they did not own any land. Mm. But with government uh, loans that they got, they also at some point uh, had to pay them money for their labor And then when they were able to buy land, my mom would tell you that they worked harder than anybody else and they built homes. My uncles had their own coffee shops and pastry shops. So these kind of stories. What it took for them to go from working on someone else's land and being poor to becoming owners of their land and building homes and uh, getting married and having their own families and sending their kids to school. My mom and her brothers and sisters, I think they barely graduated from elementary school. There was no middle school in the village, so that was it. I heard the stories way too many times, every time, like around dinner. And I know, I know, like, how they changed their life, how they made it better. So to me, that's the biggest thing I've learned through stories. Right.
0: I think it's a great example of sociocultural learning hearing the stories of your family, ancestors, and how education was sort of a way out or way out into a better lifestyle. It, it's similar for me. Like my, my dad, he would study under the streetlights, and uh, he went through a lot of struggle. But then he got his PhD. He was in academia for a long time. And there was also social respect involved uh, with teaching Besides the financial stability and then, you know, me and my sister, we also learned that this is a nice way to move forward, to change your life, to upgrade your lifestyle. Did you also feel like another reason why you got into academics or like the research side or higher education was that social respect sort of aspect? Did you feel that besides the financial stability, it also gave you access to a different feeling
1: in the social life? I don't think I did that intentionally. It sort Mm -hmm. of happened. But I do remember uh, as I started middle school, I could see that um, I was able to have conversations that other people were not able to have just because they had not learned the things that I had learned or I was able to talk about. And for me, the source of all these things were books and teachers, like books, you know, that I could borrow from the library and uh, what we learned at school. So it was very clear to me that I could have a different conversation. I don't think I was thinking so much of status quo or, you know, titles and things. Maybe I was, but I don't, I don't recall it. I remember that it was very clear that especially middle school and then high school, that I would meet with friends in the neighborhood or, you know, friends from the countryside. And I, I started experiencing more of a, a gap that they were not able to talk about all the things that I was able to talk because I had learned all these things. Mm-hmm. These things always for me was more of the intellectual. I guess that's the point. It was more of the right. ability to, to have this intellectual kind of discussion so i think there was a lot of interest in what's going on in in society social things uh, economical things so i think there was a lot of that and all that opened up completely for me when i went to the university because then i had you know 120 students i think in starting with me that i could have different conversations and they were all coming from different parts of greece and it was really exciting the this part of learning and and, and learning from other people and, and having the ability to have this level of discussion and debate about things and social, economical things. I think it was that the, the intellectual part was really intriguing.
0: Right. I think it is the privilege to have the material, to have those in, intellectual conversations, and the people to share those conversations with, because I know many women like in India, they they definitely feel trapped in, you know, like wanting to learn more and interacting more, which is like changing so much now, like from the time my mother was a student and what I hear now, I'm sure it's the same for Greece as well. You know, young women now have so many more options and so many more outlets to learn from you don't even have to go to a university just you know open up a browser and like the world of information is at your fingertips and so many opportunities to grow and learn and test uh, what you like and what you would like to learn more about so it's great that you accomplished all this at a time when those kind of clickable instant resources were not available so you did it with books and with reading and listening to the radio and television and everything and your mother's stories. So that's, that's really fascinating to me that you were able to do it without the
1: resources that people have today. Yeah. I often think that I was lucky mm-hmm. because we all make choices how to go about our education. I had access to the education system I had given that I was born and raised in, uh, in Greece. Back then, the pathways... The education pathways were very specific. The informal learning was quite active in my case because I had access to the community. I was learning a lot from my mom. I was learning a lot from around me. It's nowhere close to the level of uh, informal learning resources we have available today. And uh, perhaps I have a lot of friends who, when they look back at their professional, you know, education and professional career, they are not as content with their choices because they had to make a choice and it did not work out. And you can see why, because their exposure to other things they could be doing, and some of this is through environment and informal learning, they did not have this experience. They did not have this exposure and resources. Whereas today, I think we have much more to, to get experience in, to learn things, to learn from someone who is doing what we want to be doing. It doesn't have to be an engineer, a medical doctor, or a chemist. It can be other things, but then we can find these things. For example, I wanted to become a teacher because around me I had wonderful teachers. I never envisioned to become a corporate chemist because I did not know. (laughs) That's why I was surprised when my teacher said, oh, you will be working you know, as a chemist at a company. And I could not envision it. I did not know anyone who did that. I knew a lawyer, I think probably on TV. <laughs> you know, we know medical doctors, we know teachers. So I had to choose, you know, one of the things that I, I could see, I could see in real life. And of course, i did not want to become, you know, a worker or uh, work in a farm because I realized that that was, it was not going to be so easy for me to have a better life.
0: I do want to unpack this, that Since you were able to figure out your interests and you were able to, based on, you know, whatever limited options that you were aware of, like you said, I knew probably a lawyer, doctor, teacher. So that's how I knew I wanted to be a teacher. So when did this awareness come in that, oh, there are corporate jobs and there are problems that I can solve in the industry? Yeah. So when did that awareness
1: come for you? This is where I always say there was a plan. I made choices to embrace some of these things that happened to me. But when I did my PhD, I actually decided to to do my PhD in the polymer science department. I was new and it was because the professor had connections, collaborations, connections with uh, the US. Now don't ask me why when I was 22 years old I was thinking of that. I cannot tell you. Probably I had read something, I had seen something and I was interested. Most of the students Went to different, uh, like universities at MIT or UMass to do the collaboration. I went to UMass as part of my PhD. But before that, I did my summer internship at ExxonMobil hmm. and they invited me to come back to the US and do my postdoc. It was a research and development actually corporate research department. So there was a lot of research, applied research. It was during this time that I realized that I think I want to solve real life problems. But it's not an easy thing because, you know, for a long time I was telling myself I would become a professor. And I applied for different um, positions and I I was accepted uh, at Penn State. And it took me about, I think, 30 days until I had basically to reply back to them, that I debated a lot with myself. like, Do I want to go down this path? But problem solving in real life somehow seems much more interesting to me. Mm. If I had not had this commercial postdoc experience, and if I had only gone to UMass like um, the other students, I don't know what I would have done. That's why sometimes I say things happen. (laughs) There was a plan. (laughs) And I just said, but it was, I I do remember it was not an easy choice. And it was also a difficult discussion with my family because everybody, everybody thought that Maria would become a professor. Everybody. Mm -hmm. Compare that now with a company chemist. I mean, there is no, (laughs) if you compare like the status and everything, it's like,
0: I kind of feel like now there's more respect for people in the industry (laughs) because there is a very, and they get paid more too, you know, like there's a very clear value in using your research insights to solve real world uh, problems, like you said, and instead of uh, just theorizing and not to minimize uh, people who still want professorship, I think that's another skill if that's your calling, but I I think like now there's more and more respect, equal amount of respect for people who go the other way and put their ideas to practice. So,
1: Yeah, (laughs) but you can imagine like 20 or 25 years ago, that was not uh, obvious to everybody. Not the norm. Yeah. So people, again, had a more established roles, a lawyer, a medical doctor, a professor. Well, these are all established roles versus someone who works in a company and does something we don't know much about. I think it was the the stage, the stage of where the you know industry and everything was developed. But I, I agree with you and when I joined as a chemist and then I had the opportunity to become a manager and advance further my career. Again, these things were coming my way and it was like someone else had defined this path. And as I always said, I am where I exactly where I want to be. And when I look back, although now I have closed my corporate career chapter, when I look back, I would not change anything. I mean, I would probably change a couple of minor things, but I would not change anything in my career path and the opportunities I had. So (laughs) I think there was quite a bit of luck, choices and luck and how things work out. And then we make choices and we embrace them.
0: And with that, I'd also ask how the idea for impact learning came to your life, like after spending many years in chemistry and practice and
1: what prompted you to start this journey? Yeah, so there is a lot of reasons why I decided to close this chapter and then pursue the impact learning. I am able to continue doing some of the work I was doing before, but now as an advisor so I advise corporations on their growth strategy through marketing, technology, and innovation. But I do it as an advisor. I do it on my own terms. So it's this kind of flexibility. And I'm grateful that I am able to, to exercise this freedom of choices now. Not everybody is in this position. So I'm very grateful for that. I have uh, reflected quite a bit because, again, after 20 years of industrial education, and 20 years more or less of corporate career, it's not the most common path to say, oh, I'm going to close this chapter now and I'm going to do something else and it's going to be about learning. I think it was my overall experience because I lived and worked in different countries and I have seen different things. I have experienced a lot of different careers and lifestyles by watching and observing people because I had the opportunity to to see how things worked out for people. And my informal learning, so everything I learned about, even when I was, again, was going to school, I was learning outside of the school. When I was in corporate, I continued to study and learn things that were of interest to me, not because anybody asked me, not because there was a test. That was purely informal learning. Now, we call it informal learning. Back then, I was... Interested in learning something else, then I would learn it, or I would study, or I would write, or I would read. I did not have it three or four years ago defined the way I have it clearly in my head now, but it was the the combination of formal education and informal learning that I wanted to understand more and I wanted to learn more about. And the the purpose behind impact learning is exactly understanding how Education and learning evolve because they are changing a lot. And uh, how can we leverage, again, whether it's a formal education system and resources we have and access we have and combine it with our learning, the informal learning and everything else we can learn because we want to. How can we weave these things together and design our learning journey But most importantly, create the life we want. Because right now, if you ask me, I am very content and very grateful for the life I have. And I think there is a way, I don't have a recipe, (laughs) and that's why I have a podcast so I discuss and learn from others, that we can weave these two things together, education and learning, so we can learn to make better choices in what we learn and what we do. That's beautiful, and that leads me to the last question
0: that you ask every guest on your podcast about the legacy. It's a wonderful question, and i I really admire that you found peace in your journey, that you wouldn't change it, and you're appreciative of everything that you're doing and that and that you're in a place where you can kind of define your own work hours and continue to learn from so many different people with different backgrounds. So what legacy would you like to
1: leave uh, within this lifetime? It's about guiding and helping students and learners of any age make these kind of choices on learning and education. And uh, I want students and learners to have a, a better understanding of the options we have today of our learning options and use them to guide our choices to guide the decisions we make so we can reach the point in life sooner than later that we we enjoy the work we do we love what we learn we have a more meaningful life hopefully that creates impact and helps others and society, but it's okay also if not. But we can enjoy this kind of life that has peace of mind, joy, and freedom of choices. Every day I'm grateful that I have the freedom to make the choices I can make today. I'm hopeful about the future. I think we have more options, resources, technology plays a big role that I did not have so much access 40 years ago to be able to reach this level of freedom to make choices. But learning and education is how we will get there. That is
0: great. And I can already see your legacy in motion. I already feel like the, the podcast you're doing is setting positive change in motion. So good luck with that. And thank you for the opportunity to flip the interview. I was really curious
1: about your story and it's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sonia. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember... We can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.